Good evening. Welcome to Voice in the Wilderness. I'm Don Noble of Pure Heart Ministries, and I welcome you today with exceedingly great joy. Tonight's message, Victory in Normandy. The largest amphibious assault in military history took place on June 6, 1944. Today, June 6th, is the 78th anniversary of one of the most famous battles of World War II. Everything rested on the success of this day, yet virtually nothing occurred as planned. During World War II, the Battle of Normandy, which lasted from June 1944 to August 1944, resulted in the Allied liberation of Western Europe from Nazi Germany's control. Codenamed Operation Overlord, the battle began on June 6, 1944, also known as D-Day, when some 156,000 American, British, and Canadian forces landed on five beaches along a 50-mile stretch of the heavily fortified coast of France's Normandy region. Being one of the largest amphibious military assaults in history required extensive planning. Prior to D-Day, the Allies conducted a large-scale deception campaign designed to mislead the Germans about the intended invasion target. By late August of 1944, all of northern France had been liberated, and by the following spring, the Allies had defeated the Germans. The Normandy landings have been called the beginning of the end of the war in Europe. After World War II began, Germany invaded and occupied northwestern France beginning in May of 1940. The Americans entered the war in December 1941, better known as Pearl Harbor to us, and by 1942, they and the British, who had been evacuated from the beaches of Dunkirk in May of 1940, after being cut off by the Germans in the Battle of France, were considering the possibility of a major Allied invasion across the English Channel. The following year, Allied plans for a cross-channel invasion began to ramp up. In November 1943, Adolf Hitler, who was aware of the threat of an invasion along France's northern coast, put Erwin Rommel in charge of spearheading defense operations in the region, even though the Germans did not exactly know where the Allies would strike. Hitler charged his general, Rommel, with finishing the Atlantic Wall, a 2,400-mile fortification of bunkers, landmines, and beach and water obstacles. Talk about building a wall. Can you imagine <laughs> what they did? This is a greater wall than Donald Trump has tried to put on our southern border. In January 1944, General Dwight David Eisenhower was appointed commander of Operation Overlord. In the months and weeks before D-Day, the Allies carried out a massive deception operation 
intended to make the Germans think. The main invasion target was Pas-de-Calais. It's the narrowest point between Britain and France, rather than Normandy. In addition, they led the Germans to believe that Norway and other locations were also potential invasion targets. Many tactics were used to carry out the deception, including fake equipment, a phantom army commanded by George Patton and supposedly based in England, uh, in England across from Pas de Calais, double agents, and fraudulent radio transmissions. Eisenhower selected June 5th, 1944, as the date for the invasion. However, bad weather on the days leading up to the operation caused it to be delayed for 24 hours. On the morning of June 5th, after his meteorologist predicted improved conditions for the following day, Eisenhower gave the go-ahead for Operation Overlord. He told the troops, quote, You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you, end quote. And let me say, this meteorologist, I don't think he had really effective data because the weather turned out to be not so great anyway. So later that day, more than 5,000 ships and landing craft carrying troops and supplies left England for the trip across the Channel to France while more than 11,000 aircraft were mobilized to provide air cover and support for the invasion. Now, that little point between Dover, England, to France, Pas de Calais, France, is called the Dover Strait, and it is 20 miles. That's the closest point between the two countries. It's only 20 miles. The Germans known for their engineering skills, accomplished quite a feat to protect 2,400 miles of the Atlantic Wall. The beaches, we'll start with the beaches, they were secured with Czech hedgehogs. And the Czechs had come up with this idea and it's uh, heavy metal in the form of like an X, a large X. And the Germans buried these in the sand of the beach five in five feet of concrete. Now, when the tide was in, you would never have seen them. But when the Higgins boats, those are the landing craft that the Allies came across the channel in, when they hit the hedgehogs, they were just, they were just shattered. They were just destroyed and shredded. Now on the hills overlooking the beaches, and they're quite high, they're um, cliffs. I mean, they're high. Um, on these hills were concrete bunkers with walls 
that were nine feet thick and they contained heavy artillery. If the Allies were fortunate to make it past the bunkers, I mean, first they have to make it onto the beach, then they've got to scale up to the top of the cliff, and then if they were fortunate to make it that far, they would encounter giant swaths of barbed wire. The Germans were very clever in their attempts to stop the Allies, but a new type of plastic explosive was just invented. Now, their plastic explosives had been around for a while, but this was something brand new, something just invented, and it gave the Allies the ability to break through that barbed wire. Now, in addition to hedgehogs in the sand, nine foot thick concrete bunkers with artillery, barbed wire, there were also four million landmines planted along these beaches. It took 260,000 workers, mostly forced labor, to build this wall over two years. So I want you to take a moment and think long and hard about how diligent, diligent these Germans were in two years. This is what they accomplished. And they fortified that Atlantic wall. I mean, it was like a fortress, like nothing would be able to break through it. Oh, they were clever. We had a clever enemy in the Germans. Now, my husband and I toured the Normandy beaches, and really it was one of the highlights of my travels abroad. I have vivid memories, pictures in my mind. Um, I love military history. I love history, but I particularly like military history for whatever reason. And I saw, saw the hedgehogs. Uh, they were massive metal fixtures in the sand, just massive. And of course, I th believe I could be wrong if I, my memory serves me. It's been quite a long time since we've been there, but I think they left one, one or two, just as, you know, so that people who come to tour can see what it looks like and remove the rest. Um, then we got to go into one of the concrete bunkers and uh, totally made of concrete. If you can imagine a nine-foot box made of concrete and the only openings were on the front facing the ocean that were made for the German artillery. Now, on the Utah beach of the sector, remember there's gold, sword, Utah, Normandy, Okay, so on that section of beach, for instance, there were 110 guns from 100 to 200 millimeters in size. These are big guns, big guns. And after all of that, then we were taken to the very first town liberated by the Allies during this invasion called Saint-Mère-Église. And a lovely little town 
where the French people there, they just love, love, love Americans. It was wonderful. And there was a church steeple that they showed us that um, one of the paratroopers had gotten caught and was hanging from the church steeple when on, on D-Day. Our last part of the tour was then to the cemetery in Normandy. Thousands and thousands of white crosses, the most magnificent sight. You'd, I mean, obviously it's a sad sight, but just the appearance of the green grass, the white crosses. And I've said this before, but the very first cross that I walked up to was a soldier from West Virginia. So I thought that was pretty, that was pretty cool. Anyway, it was a really overwhelming experience, uh, to be honest. And just to think about our brave young soldiers who were gunned down from those bunkers above or who drowned in the sunken tanks that never even made it to the beach or who drowned uh, when the um, Higgins boats hit those hedgehogs, uh, all those who lay maimed on the beach from all kinds of injuries. There were 23,000 Allied troops dropped by parachute or gliders, many of which were shot down by German snipers. And many who missed their target landing sites with devastating consequences. There was dense fog, high winds, and intense anti-aircraft fire forced many of these paratroopers to jump at dangerously high speeds from low-flying planes. The paratroopers themselves, and this is really, it really is hard to fathom, they carried up to 200 pounds of equipment. I, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. And many drowned in the inland marshes, flooded by the Nazi engineers. Oh, those Nazi engineers, let me tell you, they think of everything. Remarkably, several paratrooper divisions were able to carry out their missions, destroying strategic bridges and silencing some German gun batteries. The D-Day historian um, shared many things with us um, when we went to the D-Day Museum in New Orleans, what, which is a fantastic, fantastic museum. If you ever get to New Orleans, please go to this museum. But we were fortunate to kind of run into one of the historians there who explained about the hedgehogs and many other things. But one important fact um, that you might find interesting, that day, the Allies almost retreated. General Omar Bradley was in charge of the men who would be uh, landing on the beaches. And um, when he saw the casualties mounting after two hours of nonstop shelling by the Germans, and just the slaughter. 
uh, he radioed our naval ships. They were sitting out about one mile away, and he said, we've got to turn back. Uh, we're, we're, we're not going to win this. We've got to turn back. And the naval ships radioed back and said, no, no, we're coming on in. Just hang in there. We're coming on in. And, of course, those battleships were um, manned with huge, massive artillery that shot at the bunkers. And to this day, uh, as I said, when we were there, the ground, there's not a piece of level ground. Uh, it's so indented from all the bombshells that landed. It's, um, it's really a bizarre experience. So the U.S. forces faced heavy resistance at Omaha Beach in particular, where there were over 2,000 just American casualties. However, however, by day's end, approximately 156,000 Allied troops had successfully stormed Normandy's beaches. According to some estimates, more than 4,000 Allied troops lost their lives in that D-Day invasion, with thousands and thousands more wounded or missing. Less than a week later, on June 11th, the beaches were fully secured, and over 326,000 troops, more than 50,000 vehicles, and some 100,000 tons of equipment had landed at Normandy. For their part, the Germans suffered from confusion in the ranks and the absence of their celebrated commander, Rommel, who was away on leave. At first, Hitler, believing the invasion was a feint designed to distract Germans from a coming attack north of the Seine River, refused to release nearby divisions to join the counterattack. Reinforcements had to be called up from further afield, causing delays. So that was all good for us. Hitler also hesitated in calling for more armored divisions to help in the defense. Moreover, the Germans were hampered by effective Allied air support, which took out many key bridges and forced the Germans to take long detours as well as our efficient Allied naval support, as I mentioned, which helped protect advancing Allied troops. So if it had been left to General Omar Bradley, this would have never happened. This would have never happened. But fortunately, those in charge, the naval commanders on those battleships, said, no, no, you cannot retreat. We will come on in. We will finish the job. In the ensuing weeks, the Allies fought their way across the Normandy countryside, which is a, it's beautiful, in the face of determined German resistance, as well as a dense landscape of marshes and hedgerows. And by the end of June, the Allies had seized the vital port of Cherbourg, landed approximately 850,000 men and 150,000 vehicles in Normandy and were poised to continue their march across France. Of course, we know the rest of that story. And 
thank goodness that, you know, uh, it went the way it did. Um, you know, I've thought a lot about this because I, I do like military history, and I, you know, I just wondered if if they had just waited a, a few more days for a little better weather. Uh, you know, the paratroopers took a, a, a large hit, and, um, and of course, the men on, on the beaches took a huge hit as well. But you see, as Christians, we're in a battle every day. Every day, we have a fierce enemy. Just kind of reminds me of these Germans who thought of every little trick, right? I mean, they thought of every little thing. They had landmines. They had hedgehogs. They had fortified bunkers. They had barbed wire. They did everything in their power to stop the Allied invasion. And that's just like our enemy, Satan. He has all kinds of ploys, all kinds of schemes that he just keeps, you know, throwing out there at us. I mean, just keeps pushing at us. And um, and so we can't do an Omar Bradley move, right? We can't do a general Omar Bradley move like, hey, we're going to retreat. It's just too hard. Now, I'm not making fun of General Bradley. Um, I'm not, trust me, I am not making fun of him. I'm just using this as an illustration to say, hey, you know, we can't, who's to say if I had been the general and saw all that, all the casualties, I might have said the same thing. But what I want to emphasize is that we can't go into retreat. We go on the offense, not the defense. We don't wait till things happen and then try to you know, plow through. No, 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 no. We are on the offense. You see, we have a very clever enemy, but we have a very incredible God. So I don't want to make the enemy bigger than God. Oh, no, 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 no. God is God, and he can do all things much greater than our wicked enemy. And I do want to say... Um, I want to spend some time, we're going to run out of time today, I can see, but I do want to start in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and uh, just see how far we, were, we will get. We'll take this up next week because I think it's important in talking about um, actually what is happening right today where we are, we're in a battle, but uh, let me read a few scriptures here and make some comments and then we'll close and we'll, we'll dig into this next week. But this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writing, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now, what he's saying there, this is a word to us. See, we can't be shaken. We can't be shaken by a headline in the newspaper. We can't be shaken by, you know, the headline in, uh, on TV. Um, 
I don't know what most of you watch, but I hope you're not watching mainstream media, CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, because they are full of lies and they do not tell any truth and they hide the truth. So let me just get that out. Fox News is conservative, but there's lots of issues with Fox News as well. So what I'm saying is we can't be troubled by all of this, whatever, whatever kind of media is being put out there, whether it's Facebook or whatever. We can't be shaken because Jesus Christ is coming back and he's coming back soon and he's going to gather us and take us with him. Hallelujah. But verse 3 says this, let no one deceive you by any means. You know, I, I could just stop right there. Let no one deceive you by any means, by any means, by any way, by any tricks. For that day, the day when Jesus comes back, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, that's the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Uh, the falling away is here. We are in the falling away. The church of Jesus Christ couldn't be any weaker. We couldn't be any farther. I mean, we're, it, it's almost like the church is like the world. I mean, there's pretty much not much distinction. And thank God for the churches that are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and trying to get people saved. So I'm going to have to stop there Um and we're going to pick this up next week and finish out um, chapter 2 and 3 of Second Thessalonians. So I hope you'll be with me next week. Um, and again, uh, we cherish all of our men and women who serve our country. Uh, last week was Memorial Day. Today is D-Day. And it's a, a great tribute to those who sacrificed to um, make us free. Amen. Well, you can go to www.pureheart.today and listen to this podcast again. You can download the iHeartRadio app and go to podcast and listen to Pure Heart Ministries. Um, you can uh, email me at dawn at pureheart.today. And uh, I appreciate your prayers, your financial support. Please consider helping to finance this radio program. You know, this is not Christian radio. This is this is on a secular station, and it's very expensive. Um, you can send a check to Pure Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 85, Valley Grove, West Virginia, 26060. I would really appreciate it. I look forward to being with you next week. This is Don Noble saying, Shalom, Shalom, peace be unto you.